And so that framing of Amalek, and this happens really, really continues through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, particularly how like armed struggle or resistance movements in Palestine are explained, right? Not as political actions that you know you could find horrifying or agree with or whatever, but as the sort of evil machinations of Amalek. Now, this is not universal, right? The Israeli left doesn't use language like this typically, but there is a really large portion that does. And I, you heard it after the October 7th attack, really mainstream rabbis in some places or political leaders in Israel, much more likely to be in Israel than in the US, but say things like this is a war against Amalek um, and to frame it in eschatological terms almost, um, because when you frame it as such, we're not talking about honoring victims or even like you know state safety or something we're talking about defending against an existential threat who is dedicated towards your eradication and what that inspires people to do the kind of violence that inspires them to not just commit but to overlook is really profound hello and welcome to this episode of last born in the wilderness thank you so much for joining before we get into the interview i just want to thank those that support this podcast at patreon thank you so much for your support and if you also want to back and support this work financially you can do that at patreon.com slash last born in the wilderness you can start at a dollar a month or more you'll get early access to these interviews and some other exclusive content there as well that is it everybody enjoy the episode Journalist and author Shane Burley returns to the podcast. He joins us to discuss an article that he published at Religion Dispatches titled The Story of a Post-Holocaust Group Seeking Revenge Against Nazis is Part of the Story of Israel Itself. In the article, he addresses historical traumas and contexts that underlie, in part, the dramatic escalation of violence by the State of Israel in the Palestinian territories since Hamas's October 7th attack. And this interview is part of a two-part series, uh, with the second interview to be released a few days after the release of this one. So as of the release of this episode, the Gaza Health Ministry has reported that over 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed in the ongoing incursion by the Israeli military, with over 4,000 of those being identified as children. That is nearly half. And that, of course, matches up to the demographics of Gaza, which is about 40 to 50% children. Since the October 7th attack by Hamas militants, Israel has bombed hospitals, refugee camps, aid convoys, and entire neighborhoods. While cutting off electricity, fuel, and other vital supplies and utilities to the over 2 million residents of the Gaza Strip, with no way for them to escape. To describe this as anything other than genocide would be to betray the Palestinian people, as well as our own humanity. With the full backing of Western powers, especially that of the United States, Israel is engaging in an ethnic cleansing campaign, one that has been ongoing for the better part of a century. The founding of the State of Israel in 1948 was an act of settler colonial violence, one that instigated the Nakba, or the disaster or catastrophe, expelling 750,000 Palestinians from their lands. So to discuss the October 7th attack by Hamas militants or the recent bombardment by the Israel Defense Forces in Gaza without contextualizing the colonial realities Palestinians have endured for many decades, even before the founding of the State of Israel in 1948, is to perpetuate a wholly unjust, murderous status quo. 
So while stating the obvious is crucial, there are complexities that need to be contended with, and to describe the situation as, quote, complicated or complex is often part of a rhetorical cop-out and obfuscation from speaking to the vast scale of injustices that the Palestinian people and their allies are fighting against. That is not what I'm referring to or gesturing toward in this interview with Shane Burley. There are diasporic historical traumas that need to be reckoned with to, I think at the very least, understand how this horrific ongoing catastrophe reached this inflection point and commonly perceived intractability. So as Shane identifies in this interview, the weighted terms used to describe the contours of the so-called Israel-Palestine conflict are accurate. Israel is an apartheid state. Israel is a settler colonial state. Israel is engaging in ethnic cleansing and genocide. But while comparisons are useful, this situation has novel aspects that deserve recognition and consideration, many of which we examine in this two-part interview. So you published an article for Religion Dispatches, and uh, it's very contemporary in the sense that this, well, it's always, I guess it's been contemporary or very uh, timely, I should say, for a long time, but certainly in the past few weeks, just because of the besiegement and bombardment on Gaza, this new, this more recent incursion into Gaza by uh, by uh, Israeli military um, after what happened on October 7th. Um, so I'm actually going to read just the first paragraph here of this article, and then we'll get into the kind of details of it. Um, so you begin with, I think the Palestinian village of Hawara needs to be wiped out. I think the state of Israel should do it, said Israel's finance minister. Uh, I'm going to try to say this correctly, Bezalel Smotrich, I think is how that is stated, but he's the finance minister of Israel. Um, he said this earlier this year, and though shocking to many at the time, it now seems like a popular sentiment among Israel's political class since Hamas militants invaded southern Israel, attacked a kibbutz, a music festival, and civilian outposts, killing hundreds in a particularly, particularly brutal fashion. What came next was as familiar as it was predictable. Benj- uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu assembled a unity government coalition based entirely on the one thing they, they now had in common— Support for a sweeping and merciless attack on Gaza. What was once controversial had now become consensus. The only answer to brutality is to show just how brutal we can become in response. And I think that paragraph really sets up, that particularly that last sentence, the only answer to brutality is to, to show just how brutal we can become in response. Really sets up what you're addressing here, which is about vengeance, really, or a sense of this this sort of violence that we are witnessing that is coming from the state of Israel um, and those that are advocating on its behalf. Um, so you know, from there you you kind of take a, a turn, which is toward uh, talking about the uh, what was you know, the early mafia of the United States, organized crime being Jewish, um, and how they using the various skills that they had to uh, kind of pivoting from like bootlegging more toward going after um, these kind of burgeoning fascist groups like the Bund, the German-American Bund, um, leading up to World War II, doing what we would consider today would be just anti-fascist action of like deplatforming fascists. And so you then move into discussing this sort of, these forms of early kind of Jewish resistance to what we would almost think of as a form, definitely a form of self-defense, 
but kind of what underlies that? There's a deep history, of course, of of Jewish, I would say, trauma or a sense of uh, of really working to proactively prevent forms of violence that are all too common in the history of of the Jewish diaspora. Um, so before I kind of speak too much about that, I just ask you, you know, what are you trying to address there as far as maybe the, I mean, even bring up the Jewish uh, folkloric um, figure of the golem as well to discuss this. So if you could just talk about some of those details and, you know, why you chose to kind of take that turn in the, that article to discuss uh, early Jewish resistance to like fascism and so on. I think that there is a history of Jewish resistance, like you mentioned, militant resistance, community armed self-defense and things like that, um, that has been a necessity of Jewish existence historically, and particularly in Christian Europe, when pogroms and other things would come in and incredibly brutal violence, right? A pogrom has this sort of like ecstatic emotional quality and leads to some just horrific crimes. And if you're talking about mass murder, if you look at the details of many pogroms, you know, coastal uprisings and others, they're incredibly shocking in the level of brutality that's used. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Jewish communities in a way step outside themselves. And this is sort of a, a model of traditional warfare to sort of leave your other community, your other rules of your community and sort of become somebody else so that you can take on these, these different mm -hmm modes of fighting it's something that's really been lost in kind of the american imperial war machine whereby like someone's sort of trained to be a warrior at all times and they can mm. bring that home and it affects the culture and affects their lives and things and it's a little bit different and so we have this this jewish folkloric story of the golem and i think what's really important about the story of the golem is the golem is created out of clay and imbued with with power to defend the jewish community the jewish ghetto from pogromists but what happens in the traditional story of the of the um, the the Prague golem is the rabbi then looks at the golem and thinks, "Wow, this is more ferocious than the Gentiles are." Right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it may even be more frightening. So I think when we're looking at those models of resistance and the reaction of people, what they choose to do to resist in that case, it ramps up when we're talking about the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century pogroms, and then culminating in the Holocaust whereby lots of methods of resistance and different visions for how to organize yourself and fix community problems all failed. They all collapsed on themselves. Mm -hmm. Communism did not stop the Holocaust, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Well-coordinated Jewish civil councils didn't stop the Holocaust. Religion certainly didn't stop the Holocaust. Um, and so I think what we think back is to look back to the Golem and say, well, maybe the Golem, as ferocious as the Gentiles, was what's necessary. And I think in a lot of ways that thinking underskirts certain parts of the Israeli political project and how they conceive of themselves, one, how they conceive of their role in Jewish safety, and two, the way that they conceive of reforms and outside criticism, things like that, is completely irrelevant, given the history of how those criticisms fail to keep Jews safe. Mm. Yeah, and, and you move in to discuss this group um, called Nakam. Uh, which is uh, the the word itself means Hebrew. It's Hebrew for vengeance. Um, do you talk about what this group was? I mean, we're talking about kind of this is post Holocaust, I believe, right? So um, war had ended, and there was this sort of period of time of where this group really emerged. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about the history of this group. Yeah, so it's led created by a partisan fiver, Abba Kovner, who was a partisan hero, right? Fighting the Nazis, 
from within occupied ghettos. And there's a lot of history that leans more towards that story because it is a heroic story mm-hmm. of organizing, essentially, Nakam and beginning to, to fight back as that, organizing, for example, with you know nuns who helped them smuggle in hand grenades, fought back against Nazis mm-hmm. who at first didn't believe the liquidations of the ghettos were actually happening. This is something, when you look back at the history, there's a lot of uneven consciousness about what was happening and disbelief that something this profound could be taking place because even that had kind of run counter to Jewish history which was like a you know peaking moment with pogroms and then it might settle and stuff but we didn't see it just kind of ramp up ramp up to a final solution mm. so so Kovner really is this partisan fighter and I think it's important to note that the level of trauma that we're talking about here puts people at a way of thinking that I think is hard to relate to. So like the understanding I have of how um, Abba gets this knowledge is that someone um, is part of a mass killing, they fake dying. And so they lay under bodies, uh, a pile of dead bodies for hours of their friends and family. They climb out from under that and they run back to the ghetto at night and say, this is what's happened. Mm. And his initial reaction is we should all kill ourselves. You know, there's really no point, not in a world where you have to pile, you know, climb up the bodies of your family members. Yeah. Instead, that killing of oneself then becomes let's kill them first. Um, and so you have this sort of uh, series of uprisings. I think the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising really tells that story in a certain way, too, of not hopeless, but let's do this on the way out the door, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so that ends up creating these kind of partisan fires that are really important and we're talking about the final days of the Holocaust and resisting the advancements of the final solution. But what we're talking about here, I think, is actually what comes in the weeks and months directly after that, where you have this decimated Europe and you have some survivors there lingering around some in displaced persons camps, some trying to go back to their homes and finding them empty. People, there's uneven consciousness because we're talking about people being moved to different locations, either ghettos or camps, so they don't know what happened to their family members. Uh, the scale, while they knew it was going to be in the millions, it's hard to kind of fathom that. But more importantly, sometimes when they would go back to their houses, they would find people living in them. And those people would then organize pogroms against Jews again, right? So like yeah. they weren't actually certain that the Holocaust had ended. This might actually continue. It had continued in a way that was historically novel. So it might continue to doing that. Mm. So the logic then became revenge for revenge sake. Mm-hmm. And so the, the phrase is, it was used a lot, a nation for a nation, which is basically we should enact that same punishment on the German people who are collaborators, who are uniformly uh, in support of Nazi crimes. Um, and so that kind of creates these dual plans. And this is a small group of people, right? They're picking up different survivors. Some are fighters. Um, and a number of them were saying, we're going to enact a really profound act of revenge and then we'll go kill ourselves. Right. Like that's that's what this will this is how that will end. And it really was historical, a revenge for the historical atrocities, not just committed to Jews recently, but historically. And Mm -hmm. so the goal was to use poison in major German cities, Nuremberg, Berlin, so on, um, the poison, the water supply and trying to kill kill six million Germans, particularly to be indiscriminate. Right. This was not just to be to target those who they think are ostensibly guilty because there is no guilty and innocent in this case. Hmm. And so they continue forward with this plan. The plan is unsuccessful. And I talk about it in the article a little bit. And I talk particularly about uh, a book that's recent um, called Nakam uh, by a, an Israeli historian. 
talks a little bit about how these sort of plans worked, this plan of trying to, you know, poison the water supply, why it didn't kind of work, and how they pivoted to a second plan, which is essentially to poison the food in POW camps to try and kill a number of German combatants, which mm -hmm. also was largely unsuccessful. But I think this idea of both the revenge that was implicitly necessary, but also the revenge that never actually happened is something that they filtered into the rest of their lives. And when they eventually emigrated to Israel uh, and first were involved in the um, uh, displacement and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, and then in the creation of foundational Israeli institutions like Mossad, that logic really helped to kind of birth the military infrastructure that the state depends on even now. Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that this is a, it's a, diff, it's a, I want to say it's a difficult subject, but it's difficult in the sense of you, as you mentioned, you know, it's really hard to comprehend going through, I mean, obviously we say the Holocaust, it's sort of this, um, obviously this enormous event, but it's like trying to kind of, what is it, what does it feel to get? to survive that or to make your way to the other side of that and then to sort of yeah to to draw on that history of jewish um uh being jewish and experiencing these programs in this sort of cycles these cycles of uh, these ebbs and flows of violence um and then what to do then once you reach this sort of point in history where i mean there was this sort of final solution enacted um I mean, it is it is a it's a difficult subject in that now everything that's happening, I feel like today, in part stems from that history, and so I think there has been a difficulty in what, describing what's happening right now um, in Israel and Palestine, which there is a very simple way to describe it, and then there's also some really complex details that need to also be acknowledged, um, in how we discuss this. Um, so I, that's that's really why I wanted you here was just so we can kind of get into some of this. Um, so you're talking about how this really did filter into contemporary, seemingly, you know, like these institutions that are really integral to the state of Israel. Um, so how did the these members of uh, Nakam really uh, affect, for instance, like how Mossad or the IDF or other forms of political leadership kind of conceptualize Israel's role in the world and its sort of relationship to the Palestinian people? How does this idea of vengeance really affect, like, the situation that we're in today where there's this sort of relentless bombardment and incursion into Gaza? I mean, how how does this mentality really shape, I think, Israeli policy? Do, do, is there a way to really answer that question at all? <laughs> I think there's a couple of things. And I, I think one mistake that people make when talking about this is that they end up reducing Zionism or Israeli politics to one single strand and it actually is competing strands. Um, you can be critical, all of them, but they do fundamentally have different self-conceptions a lot of ways. Mm. But one of the, the, the elements that you see, particularly with Abakovner and why I think it's relevant, is the immediate shift towards talking from about Germans to talking about Palestinians and Arabs, right? And using largely the same language to talk about each. So the term Amalek, so if people have an experience with Torah, Amalek is a perpetual enemy of the Jewish people that God orders them to be eradicated because they're always going to be enemies mm. of people. Like it's kind of a mythic story. And Germans were discussed as Amalek for very obvious reasons. I don't think anyone would like mm. fault people experience the Holocaust for calling Germans Amalek. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of those people then immediately said Palestinians are now Amalek. And what this does actually is not create just transferring this kind of dehumanization, which it certainly does. But what it does is it tells a story of Jews and Gentiles where there is a perpetual Amalek and they have different faces and names, but they should, they will always indiscriminately try and kill you. Their their end goal is always your eradication. And so the way that you treat them as as a perpetual enemy, not as a part possible partner or collaboration in building a new world, right? That's actually not possible here. Um, and so that framing of Amalek, and this happens really, really continues through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, particularly how like armed struggle or resistance movements in Palestine are explained, right? Not as political actions that you know you could find horrifying or agree with or whatever, but as the sort of evil machinations of Amalek. Now, this is not universal, right? The Israeli left doesn't use language like this typically, right. but there is a really large portion that does. And I, you heard it after the October 7th attack, really mainstream rabbis in some places or political leaders in Israel, much more likely to be in Israel than in the US, but say things like this is a war against Amalek um, and to frame it in eschatological terms almost, um, because when you frame it as such, we're not talking about honoring victims or even like you know state safety or something we're talking about defending against an existential threat who's eradicate who is dedicated towards your eradication and what that inspires people to do the kind of violence that inspires them to not just commit but to overlook is really profound yeah i think that there's sort of it's interesting i mean um there's a lot of like these really weighted terms that are being used to describe what the state of Israel is doing and what it is, everything from apartheid to um, ethnic cleansing, genocide, things like this, which I think maybe in technical terms, these are correct. I mean, I think they are, right? But there is an interesting, like the, for instance, when I I hear these terms, I recognize that there can be this overgeneralization, which is to say that the, I don't know, I think the apartheid of South Africa manifested in a way that was different from the apartheid of the state of Israel, right? Um, or the settler colonialism of the United States, which of course we should be all very familiar with, um, is not necess- did not necessarily the the results seem to be the same, which is important, but the manifestations or like how it manifested is different. So I think there's this sort of thing where people were, I think, typically would not hesitate to say that this genocide, this uh, settler colonial thing is horrific, but they have a hesitancy to necessarily frame what's happening between Israel, Israelis and Palestinians as being a similar dynamic because of this historical dimension, which is really fucking recent. The Holocaust wasn't even a century ago. And this manifestation of, of what's happening in is between Israel and Palestine is also very, you know, it's contemporary and it's, you know, it started quite recently. So it's like this, um, there's, I feel like that, not that there should be a different vocabulary, but I'm wondering like what other kind of dimension to this do I want to include in my discussion of this subject without flattening it? Do you, does that, does that kind of make some sense? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's hard because I think you're right. So, so first off, all those terms are accurate. Israel's yeah. an apartheid state. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not genocide. I think there's no one that can deny that Israel has gauged in 75 years of ethnic cleansing. I, I just can't, yeah. I can't imagine how you would deny that at this point. Right. Right. Um, 
I, I think one of the pro- one of the challenges people have is they want to be able to explain this to people in ways where they can take action. And to do that, they'll use comparisons, and the comparisons are never one to one. I mean, that's just true of any issue, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think because the action required is so pressing, I don't think we should hesitate to take action on it and then also learn about the conflict and its actual uniqueness. I think what happens in these cases is that Israel in a lot of narratives, both Jewish, but really not just Jewish, and in some ways not even primarily Jewish um, narratives, it is about the centerpiece of Jewish safety and the end of a crisis history of anti-Semitism. So like to think that, for example, that there's a, a framing we often hear, it's called the lacrimose story of Jewish history, which is that Jewish history is just like one pogrom or eradication or expulsion after another, right? That's not accurate, but that is sometimes how it's framed. All culminating and ending in the Israel, in Israel, basically the end of that Jewish victimhood. And so it all centers on this kind of military state, and that's the center of Jewish safety. So any attack on that, any assumption that it behaves like you know, a criminal state of the past, or that it's engaging in things that Jews have experienced in some way, that feels like an attack on Jewish safety in the, from that framing. And so there's a great deal of resistance, I think, to talking about the foundational problems of Israel from the idea that that will somehow create, may create vulnerability for Jews, because we already left behind the, those bullshit arguments, right? Humanitarianism, equality, none of that stopped the Holocaust. So this idea, I think, of injecting that criticism back to the state, there's like this kind of strange rejection of it. There's also just the reality that Israel is basically the outpost of the West in the Middle East that's used strategically, that's basically a money funnel for arms manufacturers. I mean, there's like a lot of like basically advantages for western imperial powers and corporations to maintain this sort of sparta in the middle east and so there's a lot of things that i think are pushing back on, on that um and i think there's also people just are confused on how to talk about it i mean jews are a diasporic people um as settlers and i think that's an accurate that's a totally accurate way of describing it it's not exactly like they had welcome homelands to go back to either so we're talking about like complicated folks right a lot of which are refugees um, so we're talking, it's really hard, I think, to talk about it in a one-to-one framework. Um, but again, when we're talking about things like settler colonialism, we're talking about something that has pretty identifiable contours and like the comparisons are useful in as much as those contours are the same. And a lot of them are. So to, to build off what you were saying there, um, absolutely. Yes. These are, these terms are all accurate. And I think that what can happen is there's a sense of uh, maybe a trepidation or fear that you could be overly generalizing, which could lead to sort of anti-Semitism. And I think actually this is also the part of it that's really difficult for people because obviously this notion of being anti-Semitic, it's like people don't want to be often anti-Semitic or they don't want to be called anti-Semitic at the very least. And there are groups that are basically covering for Israeli crimes or state crimes using the term of like, well, you're being anti-Semitic. So there is this sense of like some trepidation around using certain types of terms, talking about Israel being apartheid state, talking about ethnic cleansing, talking about, uh, you know, the fact that what Israel is doing to people in Gaza or the West Bank is frankly disproportionate to say the very least. I mean, so... I don't know. I think that this is really a diff. This is one of those subjects where 
it's not that it shouldn't be addressed or the action shouldn't be taken. It's just that I think there has to be a certain amount of, of an intelligence and a certain amount of thought to it that any kind of major subject like this should also have, regardless of where it's happening. But I think a lot of people are maybe having some issues with that, um, that part of it. I think, I mean, this is, a, I mean, in general, flippant political responses to serious issues are a bad idea, you know, <laughs> but it's especially true in mm-hmm. this case. So you're right. There's a basically a cottage industry of accusing critics of Israel as to be anti-Semites. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is like the entire model offered by like the Anti-Defamation League, who at the same time as they're accusing students of justice in Palestine of being anti-Semitic, took down pages for lips of TikTok and are basically, you know, kowtowing to far right folks and Elon Musk, right? Like those mm-hmm. folks actually engage in basically systemic anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And at the same time, they're giving those sort of a pass and then directing all their energy against anti-Zionists, basically, including yeah. anti- Jewish anti-Zionists. Mm-hmm. So it, it creates a that disingenuousness. Um, maybe disingenuous isn't the right word. I'm sure they really believe it. Um, yeah. But that factually incorrect assessment um, creates a lot of confusion for folks. And it creates mm-hmm. a lot of this kind of air of suspicion around people who are you know, supporting liberation of Palestine around like the BDS movement, which always is tarnished as anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. And at the same time, you see anti-Semitic conspiracy theories filter in just like they do in any kind of political movement, particularly anything that involves kind of international actors. Um, and people don't know how to think parse through that. Um, this is a complicated issue. And I, I think one of the problems that we have is the framework people understand that is that anti-Zionism could get so extreme that it then becomes anti-semitic mm-hmm. but i think what i would contend in a lot of my work is that that is completely the wrong way to think about it someone could be uh anti-semitic and be an anti-zionist they could be anti-semitic and be a zionist the actual practical politics of that changes it's the underlying motivations and contours of their ideas you would have to look at to assess it and i think when you look at it that way this blanket idea that anti-zionism is anti-semitism completely falls apart because it's not based on any kind of factual assessment of how anti-semitism actually functions this is what happened a lot when talking about like for example the hamas attack people's responses to it you know the hamas attack is brutal as it is and i think it is absolutely brutal and shocking um Mm -hmm. To frame it simply as anti-Semitism is to totally misunderstand what's happening here. This is a political Mm -hmm. contest between two parties, one that engages in ethnic cleansing over decades and decades and pushing and has a totally disproportionate use of force historically, who is Nakba, the Nakba, basically the, the, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine has continued for 75 years. And then you have another party responding in ways that I think are obviously unethical, but to call it anti-Semitism simply because Jews are on the receiving end of it misunderstands what anti-Semitism is and how it works and how to identify it. That doesn't mean that someone has to support it or, or, or disregard Jewish suffering or something like that. But by conflating these terms, you end up with the inability to parse out anti-Semitism and even to figure out how the issues at play work. You invisibilize what's actually happening. You invisibilize Palestinian uh, experiences and you vis- invisibilize the actual political process that leads up to events like these yeah i want to actually um in using this framing of settler colonialism uh, this is like near the end of your article and i just want to quote these like two paragraphs here um the unfortunate reality of settler colonialism is that the settlers which in this usage would include most jewish israelis are largely insulated from the dispossession the colonized face 
This only further radicalizes the settlers who are unable to understand in emotionally satisfying ways why their Palestinian neighbors, quote, neighbors, are so angry and why they experience Palestinian violence as illogical aggression. The dissonance, this dissonance allows attacks against Israelis to be framed as irrational anti-Semitism rather than politics. Uh, yet another people trying to make Jews victims. Um, Esu hates Jacob is a classic equation explaining why the hatred held by one people, the descendants of Esu, towards the children of Jacob, Jews never seem to expire. Uh, first the Germans and now the Palestinians, as this logic would have it. So I, I do, because we're kind of talking about this as being a, these two, a, this is a political conflict. It is not necessarily about just because Jews are attacked by uh, Hamas, that that is necessarily fundamentally or essentially anti-Semitic. But it is interpreted by settlers, I imagine, as being fundamentally anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. um, so if you could talk a bit about it, because there is, I think, an internal dynamic, because it's one thing to be sitting outside of this place and not be there and to observe it from the outside. But to be in that place, there is sort of an, a kind of psychosocial or really deep, heavy emotional co uh, kind of context or sort of aspect to this that I think is is really coming up. I mean, um, if you could talk to that kind of dynamic a little bit. Right, right. And so I, and I think let's add another layer of complexity to it. Hamas has act shown actual anti-Semitism in the past, right? So their 1988 charter, for example, suggests that Jews invented communism, that they created the French Revolution, that they control the world economy through like the Rotary Club and the Lions Club, like mm. classic mm. anti-Semitic conspiracy mm -hmm. theory. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can say and say, like, hey, well, clearly there's there's been some anti-Semitism floating around there. But when you look at the political communications of Hamas and stuff, again, not even defending their attack, it's just very clear that this was an intentional kind of military attack of some kind. In fact, it could really could, could be compared to like a strategy of tension employed by you know the IRA in Northern Ireland or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, as brutal as those, those things are. But again, not necessarily motivated by anti-Semitism. Um, or at least it remains to be seen. But what ends up happening and what you see in a lot of narratives when you look at like the writing on anti-Zionism that presents it as anti-Semitism is that they present um, the reactions to Israel not as the angry reactions of the colonized against their oppressor. Um, they understands it as, the, as a reaction to what they see as Jews stepping out of what their subservient rule. So the the language that's used is that Islam has, or Islamic countries have this sort of um, dimmy status, this subservient status for Jews, and that the Zionist movement basically stood out of their, you know, appropriate subservience. And that's what actually motivates the anger. And then that's clearly a form of anti-Semitism, part of that eternal anti-Semitism we were just talking about that is kind of inescapable and that all people who are not Jews kind of face or, or um, uh, experience. So that kind of reframing filters through these reactions to say like, oh, that that violence, it's because we're Jews, it's because they hate Jews. Um, it's because of this deep kind of thousands of year old animus. Mm -hmm. Why else would it? Because you're not actually experiencing this day to day struggle of living behind a blockade, living in this occupied area, right? Like you're not actually um, experiencing that kind of visibly. I think like this, this actually gets to places where I think there might be actually useful comparisons because there's a lot of discourse that's talked about sort of like the privilege of being a Jewish Israeli in comparison to a Palestinian, Palestinian that may have a lot much longer history in the land, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of 
undeniably true, right? They're, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the Jewish state that has inculcated itself as a Jewish state. So if you're a Jewish Israeli, there's certain privileges you have and stuff. But it also doesn't erase the fact that the situation does not make you tremendously safe, right? Like I don't look at Jewish Israelis and think, what a tremendously safe bunch of Jews, right? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Like it's actually an incredibly volatile, scary situation to be in. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is this sort of like modicum of privilege actually really undermines a, the idea of profound Jewish safety. You know, a profoundly Jewish safe life there would be one where Jews are in partnership with marginalized people and can work together to build a society that respects their all of their autonomies, right? That mm-hmm. respects their histories and continuity and that kind of thing. That's what would actually keep a Jewish person safe. That was what would keep me more safe, right? So this kind of invisibility of how systems work, of the reality of the occupation, uh, the reality of the Nakba, um, I think it actually ends up validating these sort of kind of spurious definitions of anti-Semitism. And I also don't want to like to have that kind of a race that anti-Semitism does is increasing and is prevalent and mm-hmm. is something people face. And I think that also ends up motivating those things. They become the same story to a lot of folks. So if you've experienced anti-Semitism in your life and then you see the Hamas attack, those end up feeling very, very similar. Right. And so I think this creates a confusing kind of mess for how to understand these forces politically. Well, it seems like simultaneous too, because like I, I mean, we saw I, I, there was a child. Um, was it in Detroit or Michigan? I believe that was attacked. Chicago, maybe. Chicago, yeah. It was uh, Midwest. Um, yeah, I, I can't say exactly where. I can't remember the details, but they, based on sort of this Islamophobic hatred or or paranoia, this one man had, and he attacked this child and, and killed them, and so. We have been seeing uh, an increase across North America of um, attacks against people that appear to be Muslim or Arabic or of Middle Eastern origin uh, or descent. And we're also seeing, I imagine, there's also probably an increase of uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes as well. So it's like this, we're talking about two kind of broad groups of people that have been historically have experienced such levels of violence and oppression that have happened cyclically for various reasons. And these two groups seemingly are also experiencing, you know, because of this conflict really flaring up, um, are also experiencing as part of the larger, you know, kind of global phenomena of like both, you know, uh, anti-Semitic and Islamophobic attacks. So it's, I think that what, I think why people are feeling, people are describing this sense of despair and darkness that that they it was a there was an interview i was reading recently with somebody i think his name was nathan thrall who wrote a book about um what it was like for one man in palestine to experience this tragedy with his son um really good i haven't read the book but the interview was very good he's describing what it was like to live in jerusalem at this time and how it just feels very like it hasn't felt this dark since 1948 you know or like this like earlier period of like major conflict. So there is this general sense. And I think part of the despair is the feeling that it's intractable. Like there isn't really like, yes, there could be a ceasefire. Of course, there could be a pause of violence right now, but this does not necessarily unwind or, 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 or untangle this sort of in this, this situation in a way that would be satisfying to anybody it feels intractable. So I think I just want to speak to that that reality of 
why it feels so bad right now is that obviously the, the the slaughter should end i mean all of this should end the apartheid should end all of this should end but like it is a unique and complex situation as well um i don't know i think getting prepared for this interview i was like actually doing a little more like in-depth reading into some of the things that preceded the the instatement of the state of israel and I I think I had over time lost some of those details and and had started to really simplify the conflict a little more in my mind. And I think that's happening a lot right now, but I I think it's a little more especially speaking to this what you've written in this article, um we are dealing with I uh, I don't know what word to use. I'm sorry. It's it's just it feels it feels despairing for a reason. I guess I just wanted to speak to that. Yeah. So I think the first thing is that we need a demand for an immediate ceasefire. I, yeah. I think that this is a unified demand that a mass movement should form behind. It's so common sense to me that I find it hard to even entertain mm-hmm. their offers. Right. And I think um, obviously this is what will stop the assault on Gaza, right? An immediate demand for a ceasefire. It's going to also be what's necessary if you want the hostages back, right? The Israeli hostages, mm-hmm. that's, that's what's going to be necessary. I think Hamas is also demanding basically to release Israelis, Israel's hostages, which are basically people sitting in Israeli prisons uh, without charge, right? Mm-hmm. Like basically um, as if they were Guantanamo prisoners at releasing those. Um, this is what would stop, obviously, like the 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 attacks um, that are now coming in from Yemen. So I think that's what people should be unified on. I think that what this does is it actually keeps everyone in the situation safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't for somehow suggest this is just a two sided conflict, right? Like Israel's mm-hmm. overwhelmingly the violent party in this, and yeah. they are the sort of instigator in the colonial interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, ceasefire is actually something that 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 keeps everyone safe. So that's a starting point. There are three possible outcomes to the region. The first, what I generally support, um, is the binational solution, sometimes called the one-state solution. There's also kind of like alternatives that are like non-state autonomous, you mm-hmm. know, like kind of more wonky ones. But the point being is that it ceases to be Israel as a Jewish state and then becomes sort of a a secular democratic state for everybody, mm-hmm. which would ostensibly be sort of like a Palestinian and Jewish state, right? Because yeah. this is positive right. relations. And in doing so, the goal would then be to create a society that actually accurately reflects the, the population. So it really does inculcate pa- Palestinian identity and autonomy. And there's also the Jews having the same kind of thing, right? And they kind of build this society together. That would be sort of the best case scenario one that respects what i think is a positive vision Hmm. for the future um and that also requires a few things for example the palestinian right of return to all their uh properties and and for all descendants um and you know adding palestinians to the law return this is all kind of I guess not ironically, but what the PLO was demanding was basically that you know, this would now become this binational state with for everybody. You would mm-hmm. restore those harmed in Nakba um, and then kind of like take down the barriers to full participation in society. The second option is a two-state solution, which I find increasingly un kind of unrealistic given the settlements so the two-state solution would be basically israel and palestine with kind of designated borders more or less where the 1967 borders that were eradicated through the occupation of the six-day war so but the problem is is that israel has sanctioned settlements so like jewish 
uh, Israelis going and creating kind of Jewish only communities in occupied areas, and now there's hundreds of these, um, that has basically made Swiss cheese out of the land that could be this Palestinian state. So it's, uh, even if you wanted that solution, which I don't, which I think again reifies nations and borders, even that seems unpractical at this point. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure how that would actually be capable. And I don't think that would absolve tensions because any arrangement is going to be unjust for some parties in it and will likely continue the Nakba for a lot of people. The third solution that I think is increasingly what the Israeli political class wants is like the first solution, but it's not a binational state. It's just a unified Israel mm. as a Jewish state um, with a further, further right wing sort of conception of itself, uh, led partially by Lakhud and Netanyahu and folks, but also by this this even further right coalition of um, uh, of religious Zionists and, and far right activists and stuff that have around them, and particularly in the settlement movement. And what this essentially does is it annexes all this land, right? Though, which is kind of the goal in a lot of ways of the settlements as it stands. Um, and then within there, there's really two solutions there. One is something like South Africa, where basically there is an uprising internally and a social movement that basically tears at it from the inside. The dialectic being that when you when you annex all that land, you actually annex all these people with an opposing identity and they have, have the ability to struggle internally. Right. And so that might be the result. And in a way, I feel like that there's a certain kind of inevitability that if you do that, you actually create. A political identity that has the ability to resist from a new vantage point the other way though and which i didn't think was possible years ago but with the new kind of rhetoric coming from the israeli right is that they would simply expel ethnic uh palestinians right mm -hmm. like they would simply expel them and that would be the end of that that kind of like internal struggle dynamic so what we're talking about here is you know one solution which i think is ethically morally and practically good of a binational autonomous region or state and these other ones that seem to do nothing to solve the problem now like i don't want to be pollyanna about this you don't just make this a binational region and everyone's stoked yeah right <laughs> and all attention falls we're talking about lots of historical trauma here mm -hmm. but what we are talking about is creating a new situation in which a lot of the inciting uh violence maybe hasn't been undone but has been mitigated or addressed in some way and then a new future is possibly to go forward and at that point what we're talking about is that palestinian and israeli jews who face various marginalizations as working class people or as people of color whatever are able to build more concrete alliances to struggle for the additional problems that the state presents as a state or as a society in capitalism right right so I think we have to think about what is the steps that get us there. A ceasefire is such a practical and direct one right now that prioritizes Palestinian and Israeli Jewish lives, right? It prioritizes literally everyone's lives, uh, though acknowledging that the, the primary recipient of the violence right now are Palestinians and historically. Sure. But that, I think, is how you get that started. But what we need to look at October 7th and then say is that this thing is not going to be this kind of violence can't be undone unless you undo the kind of foundational violence that sort of triggers it. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what I talk about in the story, as I quote from uh, France Fanon, and basically talk about like when the colonizer introduces the violence, the violence that comes back to them is sort of like a boomerang. Uh, that's, yeah, the, yeah. that's the phrase my, my friend Giomar uses. It's like a boomerang back. Mm -hmm. And there's only one way of actually stopping that from happening, which is to remove the violence from the equation in the first mm -hmm. place like undo that colonial situation a lot of people then i think getting back to what we talked about a moment ago about seeing israel as the center of jewish safety think that this fundamentally makes jews 
unsafe. But I think the answer to that is one, Jews aren't particularly safe there right now. And two, like what we're not talking about is the expulsion of all Jews from from the land, the historic land of Palestine, right? We're talking about a collaborative society where they should be respected by a democratic equal society that they're a part of, right? So we're not actually talking about something that should compromise Jewish safety. We're talking about inviting them to participate in building a new kind of Jewish safety, one built on solidarity. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking, like, I, I agree. And I think that that obviously is the path forward, Um it's it's of course worth acknowledging like the U.S.'s involvement and how the status quo benefits the U.S. Uh, seemingly the U.S. government and so it's it's like pressure has to be exerted um, in multiple forms in multiple ways for that possibility of a, a so-called one-state solution to even emerge as as a potential future. Because otherwise, it's just spiraling. You know, I I don't see how again this this intractability feels this way because it's, uh, you know, it, it just it just feels that way. But it doesn't mean that is what it is. I think uh, it's hard when you're kind of in that. I think everyone's feeling ex- extreme. Like emotions are very high right now, and it's hard to always see the kind of practical steps that can be taken to. Obviously, ceasefire is the first step, and then everything else that comes after. Um, can lead to a, a much more harmonious, I won't say harmonious, but a much better situation for sure. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to this interview with Shane Burley. Uh, this is part one of a two-part interview. We decided to pick up our discussion a few days after we recorded this part. Uh, we really wanted to get into some other aspects of this situation. We examined the Christian rights Zionist anti-Semitism Israeli leftism, the internal political tensions in Israel before and since the events on October 7th, and what Shane has described as how Jewish safety has always been at the hands of solidarity with other marginalized people. So please tune in to part two of this interview. Thank you so much for your attention. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you would like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And if you support my work there, you will gain early access to these interviews before I release them publicly. Um, You will find other exclusive content there as well. So to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast, however you choose to do that, thank you very, very much. If you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast, you can do that through two means. You can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastborninthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page. That'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. 
And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.